Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold-Russ, your host for this week. Company culture can make or break a startup's success, but great culture takes work. Not only do you have to define it, you have to maintain it. Culture isn't static. That's something that CultureAmp understands. The Melbourne, Australia-based people and culture platform makes it easy to collect, understand, and act on employee feedback. To discuss how CultureAmp works with companies like McDonald's, Slack, and Salesforce, I'm joined by Matt Timmons, head of Europe for the company. Welcome to What's Next, Matt. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having me on. Wonderful. So great to have you. So maybe we can start with defining culture. I think most people understand that it's sort of part of a company's DNA, but where does it actually come from? As far as culture amp and we're concerned, culture really starts with values, right? So it's this idea that they're the roots from which everything then comes about from. But I think when a lot of companies think about values, they think about it being something that they need to create or design. In our way of thinking, it's actually not about that. It's actually about things that are already there, but they crucially need to be uncovered. So they're definitely not words on a wall, you know, the dreaded wall that you see where it's integrity, respect. And oftentimes employees, you know, don't see any value in in those values, if you will. Sure. So it's about what people are willing to hurt for on a bad day. It's not just what things are celebrated when it's a good day. And to get values right, you actually need to do three things really well. You need to clarify to your people the meaning of the values. You need to make them relevant to people's actual work. It's all about getting buy-in, engaging people, helping them to be the best version of themselves at work. And so relevance is really important as well. But the most important of all is an idea and a concept around mutuality of values. So this is the idea that, you know, what do the values tell employees that people are going to need to expect from the company? But equally, you know, and probably more importantly, actually, what does it tell the company that we're going to expect from people we're hiring in and people we've already got? So it's this idea of give and take. I think that CultureAmp's view is that employee feedback is really the best way to gauge and manage that culture. And you guys had done uh, one study that showed that higher engagement was associated with almost 25% higher share price growth versus lower engagement uh, employees. And so employee perceptions are, are often a very strong lead indicator of future outcomes. What does employee engagement tell a manager? What we help companies to, to anchor on and managers, uh, you know, a crucial part of that is they get their, their engagement score. That's the outcome from an engagement survey. So it's measuring three fundamental things, actually. It's measuring people's willingness to recommend to be advocates, brand ambassadors for the company. That's crucial when we think of hiring high-quality talent. What are people saying about the company? Is it a great place to work? Crucially, this idea of discretionary effort or motivation. And most importantly of all, it's actually measuring retention, people's willingness to stay committed to working for the company into the future. One of our recommended best practice engagement questions is, do you see yourself still working at this company in two years' time? What we think of as future commitment across a two-year time horizon. And so when managers get their results, the first thing we say in terms of how to understand, unpack 
the data is to think of this as what would happen if we didn't do anything as a result of this survey. This idea of what we call a null hypothesis. The question that measures retention shows that in the most tangible and active way. If that team was to have a really high score on an uh, unfavorable score rather on that question, that is really telling because that means that people are very much likely to be leaving that company and that team reporting to that manager in inside the next two years. So so that's what it shows managers. One of the things I think is so interesting about CultureAmp is just the volume of data that you have been able to collect. Something like 2,500 customers around the world, you know, millions of surveys done, and it's all this anonymized, benchmarkable engagement data. I was curious if that allows you to predict some interesting trends whether it's across industries or companies of similar size or scope, can you do things like forecast turnover, for example, based on you know, some leading indicators? That's exactly what we're doing. What we're trying to do in CultureAmp is create a movement around what we do. So, of course, we're a software product trying to help people scale culture by collecting, understanding and acting, as you said very eloquently right at the start, um, acting on that feedback. But we want to create this idea of something bigger than ourselves. And it is this idea of a culture first movement. So what we have done is and we're still doing is create creating a people geek community around the world that's now over 100,000 people strong in, in cities all over the world. Some of those are customers, some of them are not yet customers. But what it's already helping us to do is scale the impact, hopefully, of what we're doing. And then what we're then doing and bringing that to bear in the product is absolutely that. We have a massive data lake at our disposal. So we know there's a lot talked about machine learning, artificial intelligence. The one big thing that those things need to actually add any additional value is to have large or massively large data sets. So that is what our data scientists are able to leverage. One of the big ways we've started to do that is by creating a turnover and attrition of talent uh, prediction uh, algorithm. And that's already starting to be really massively popular with our organizations because it's often the the problem HR and chief HR officers have is that culture even now is often deemed to be the light and fluffy stuff. So how do we keep culture first on the executive agenda across all of our other executives, you know, whether it's the chief financial officer or the CMO or whatever it is, chief sales officer, etc. And what our attrition prediction algorithm can really help with that, because it shows the financial impact of people that have been disengaged and have been regrettable churn or turnover and attrition of, of talent. Other than something like turnover, given all of the data that you guys have access to um, and your customers presumably know that you've put together, have there been any really interesting challenges brought to you by a company that they'd like to solve with the data? One of the big ones that we're focused on and we hear all the time was conceptually, we know that engagement links to performance. So if you have highly engaged people, that links to high performance. But how can we start proving that through the data? So what we are now, of, you know, are already able to do is start connecting the dots between different data sets. So one of our customers is InVision. 
and they help UX and UI professionals with uh, creating UX. They were using uh, Zugata, which is the performance uh, vendor that we acquired earlier this year, back in January. And so what we were able to do is bring engagement data, uh, in fact, sorry, more on the onboarding side, so data around uh, were new hires getting ramped up to speed quickly. We were able to start linking that with performance data that they'd run through Zugata, which is now culture and performance. And we were able to start... Uh, what we call this idea of a foresight engine. We were able to start showing what was going to happen. So one of the data points on that, I think it was where new hires felt like they were up to speed and knew how their role linked to the goals of the organization. If they were able to do that quickly, they were 3.42 times more likely to end up being a high performer over time. And so these are the things that we can start to do, linking data together on the engagement data, onboarding data, and, you know, data across that life cycle of the employee, if you will, with data actually looking at performance management as well. So we have a whole product uh, development group working on this idea of connecting the dots and, and creating more examples of that foresight that we can bring to bear for modern organizations. Are there particular waypoints in a company's journey, like, you know, the, the sort of magic 150 number of employees or, or maybe M&A activity when culture tends to shift? Um, another report you guys came out with called Culture Crunch um, <laughs> yes. talked about sort of shifts by funding stage, which I thought was really interesting in terms of insights. One was that Series B companies generally score lower on questions about people understanding their roles and duties during a transitional stage. Definitely. You know, the more customers you bring on, it's almost like a double-edged sword that comes with its own internal problems of well, how do our processes scale and how does our culture scale? The way CoachRamp can help companies like that is helping them to think through, you know, how to be intentional about then using a product like CoachRamp to listen and take action right across the employee life cycle. That's really a tangible way of being able to scale culture. You said, is there a magic number of people? You know, companies start using culture when they get, say, 40 or 50 people upwards. So our smallest company that we work with is around 40 people. Just for context, our largest is well over 150,000 people around the world. (laughs) But anyway, this idea that being intentional about continuously listening to people, whether it's, you know, after interviews, so candidates experience, how are we ramping up and giving new hires really clear, you know, purpose and meaning in their work right from the get-go how are we growing and developing our people over time you know there that links into sort of performance development performance measurement as well and obviously then offboarding the reality is people will leave and some attrition is good and but we still want to know well, what were the critical reasons why why people left to your point about mergers and acquisitions that is absolutely another another one to such an extent that we culture we've recently done a lot of research and released new surveys uh, specifically on this idea of measuring culture through times of change so we've recently for all of our existing customers given uh, access to two new surveys this idea of measuring change readiness so how comfortable are our people going into a change process and obviously a merger or acquisition is one of the biggest types of organizational change that we see but then crucially also measuring the progress of the change either during or post and you know this is this idea that we are back to that intentional feedback strategy it actually does go far beyond just engagement surveys and so the most advanced 
quote unquote customers we work with are really working with us to be more intentional about which use cases of our people and culture platform they can leverage at the right moments in time for maximum sort of organizational impact. And you mentioned performance management. I'm curious, does that have maybe an outsized impact on company culture or is that sort of equally important to other aspects? Because I always think performance management and, um, you know, opportunities for growth for individual employees, that can often be one of the most important things that affects their experience. Absolutely. That's the massive fundamental problem that we see. And so just for context, like the mission of CultureAmp is to really amplify the what 100 million people worldwide are capable of being at work. So how can we help people to be the best version of themselves? So that's actually why we recently went into the performance management space as well. There's so much research. I was at an event uh, in Stockholm yesterday where a colleague of mine presented a a presentation and there was a data point to go that 90% of employees feel unmotivated by the performance management process at, at work wow. in their organizations today. A phenomenal statistic in all the wrong ways, but gives yeah. an opportunity for us just to do our bit to try and help move the needle on that. And so what is fundamental about performance management is this idea of organizational justice. So fairness, what people detest about performance management processes today is that they're deemed to be black box. They're deemed to be untransparent. People don't know why they were given the ratings that they were given. And it's a feeling of, uh, yeah, a feeling of lack of clarity and openness about what's going on and how that decision was made to give that person that level of performance rating. So what we are trying to do with that, with our performance management product is a help managers and, and companies to remove bias. There are so many biases at play. You know, the reality is we're all biased. So, but how can we help to mitigate that as far as possible and really make the processes open and transparent so that people, even if they don't like the outcome they get in terms of where they are, they're, they're said to be in terms of their performance, at least they know it was a fair process. If people are hating that process, that really is going to be quite demoralizing for people. And it's, it's this idea that we're not actually improving performance. We're ticking these boxes of doing our performance processes and they're pretty demotivating for people. You know, our CEO Didier Elzinger says it best. It's like, you know, ultimately, the best culture first companies, they know that they will only grow by growing their people. And mm-hmm. even to the point that some people might outgrow the company and move on. But actually, if we've got management and leadership doing that, we've actually been a really successful business because our people have come in at a level and we've grown them to a much higher level of performance. And so our performance product is very much focused on developmental future focused aspects mm-hmm. as well, which is fundamental. And this idea of linking through to other development resources, we, our product can even connect people up using network analysis with people who have come out, you know, let's say an employee say, has something as a relative weakness, we can connect people internally uh, with people who have that as a relative strength. So we can again hmm. create real dialogues on the back of a performance sort of process. And on the flip side of that, I was curious if you give tips to managers on properly interpreting feedback from their direct reports. 
Because that's something that I know a lot of management teams talk about, you know, making sure that they're getting feedback on their performance as managers and having that be part of their own performance evaluation. But then you also run into this sort of point in time challenge where, you know, maybe you gave someone some very honest feedback about their own performance and then asked them to give you feedback. They may hold it against you or something. Do you have tips for managers on sort of understanding the feedback from their own team upwards? So what we do know is that feedback is done really badly generally speaking. So, you know, there's all these things that, you know, these models of, you know, packaging up good feedback, bad feedback, and then, you know, creating that sandwich. So always feeling like you have to counter some constructive feedback with loads of positive things as well. Right. And it's some crazy ratio. It's like 10 good things to everyone. That's right. That's right. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but it's turning that on its head and trying to help people become good coaches. Definitely not micromanagers. But in terms of then how, how we help managers to interpret any feedback they do get. One of the things I tell people is that he's having the right headspace to take that feedback in the right way, in a constructive way. It's about having the headspace, being intentional about digesting that feedback thoroughly with the right mindset going into it. So, you know, this idea of you are what you pay attention to. And so not going in there with a really cluttered brain, reading that feedback, and then reality is you might take then that the wrong way. And that's going to be really counterproductive. And and yet the last thing you want to do is have employees give managers feedback and them, them, them taking it in that wrong way. And it really having a counterproductive long-term impact on those relationships as well between managers and employees. So how different are engagement tactics between industries? Is it pretty much the same across uh, organizations or is a, you know, a retail company need to think about these challenges differently from a tech company, for example? In terms of the process, there's not massive differences. Obviously, one glaring one is how do we be inclusive? So when we're talking about retailers, for instance, or manufacturing companies, certainly not technology businesses where everyone's got access, ready access to emails and laptops, um, is how can we include those folks in the process? The reality is they're probably oftentimes the people that need our help the most as well. Back to our mission is that how do they feel like their work is meaningful and has got purpose? So we, we have technical ways we can involve those people. So that's the first thing I'd say. What we do is we we call it a kiosk mode where rather than having to uh, have access to emails, they can get given a unique code. And, you know, in the warehouse, there's probably one computer, a kiosk, hence the name, where they can punch in their code and take the survey just like anybody else. That's the way we can try to help create inclusive approach to employee feedback for disparate populations, if you will, of employees within organizations. In terms of then the process of running the surveys, there's definitely a maturity that separates different companies. And what I would say is, it's a bit of a generalization, but those retailers, manufacturing companies, they're probably on the continuum, if you like, they're probably further more towards the outset. So what I mean by that, they've either done nothing, they've either never collected any engagement survey data, if they have, they've either done it themselves using a, like a tool like a Survey Monkey or Google Form, or they've come at it from a consultancy model approach where a consultancy would come in, they would run a survey for the company, but it wouldn't feel like the company themselves was owning their own feedback 
strategy over time. So in that case, what we typically do is is really help companies to do one survey really well first. So what we call a diagnostic. And so that is the classic engagement survey, but making sure the questions that are asked are very relevant to that respective organization. And that's where people scientists that we offer, we have a team of them worldwide, they all have organizational psychology, IO psychology backgrounds, really to help companies tailor and target the questions based on their people and, and, and what's a high priority in terms of their business strategy as well. So we, we make sure we double down on that one diagnostic first. And we crucially also help them to share out data. So get the data in the hands of managers around the organization to start scaling this impact of feedback. Then on the other side of the coin, I would suggest technology companies are some of our most advanced customers. And you know, what does advanced mean? It means they are moving towards a more agile model of feedback. They definitely do their annual diagnostic to make sure they've got that richness of data. But they're then, you know, this idea of closing feedback loops, they are taking results to action. They're having a more focus on the action, which is obviously where you get the impact from, like, it's no good doing a survey if you're not going to take action. And so those companies have moved towards a real focus on the action part. And, and, and in so doing, then following up and measuring, are we actually moving the needle? We've chosen our focus area. We've created some actions. We've given them time, realistic amount of time to have an impact. Then we're helping those companies to do tailored pulse follow-up surveys. So they're still tracking engagement. But then they're really tailoring and targeting even more the other questions they ask in a smaller survey to make sure they're seeing what the trends are over time. And you mentioned inclusion, and I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle, not only making sure that everyone's voice is heard, but also ensuring that people can bring their full selves to work. And I think that's a big part of sort of feeling welcome in a culture. I'm curious if there are particular questions or areas that you guys probe to sort of help companies successfully foster a sense of belonging in their organization and in their offices? Yes. To be a culture-first organization, we absolutely have to embrace not only diversity, but actually inclusion. What we know from our research is that I feel that I belong at this organization is inextricably linked to high levels of engagement over time. We uh, have a dedicated inclusion and diversity survey, and we release a study on the state of IND uh, every year. It's a great report. Yes, thank you. That's consistent year on year and over time ever since we first released that, that report. But I think inclusion really talks to one of the fundamental things of Culture First. As I said, it's about what we talk about as holding up a mirror. So encouraging a culture of feedback and embracing continuous improvement. So what we need to help companies to understand by holding up a mirror, we need to understand and accept that there might be multiple truths in the business. There's bound to be some highly engaged populations and they're having a great experience at work, probably, you know, growing and developing. And then there's going to be people that are having a suboptimal experience. And we need to accept that and say, hold that mirror up and do something about it. But but the reason it's so important, of course, is that, again, it links to high performance because we want to make sure we are hearing the bright ideas from everybody. And Mm -hmm. the reason, therefore, that psychological safety is so important 
is because we want people to not feel scared to share their unpolished ideas and thoughts. And it,、mm-hmm. and it very much is on our managers. We need to help managers to create psychologically safe, safe spaces. And where inclusion really comes to bear is in team meetings. And this manifests in a multitude of ways. You imagine a scenario where you've got a team of six people; five are in the office that day. And the reality is, of the modern world with remote working, one is is working from home, flexible working on that that particular week. How do you create a remote first experience? How do you include that one person dialing in in that meeting and not forget that they're there on the phone? You know,、mm-hmm. some ideas we think about there of is running remote first. What I mean by that is that. Even though five are in the office and one's dialing in, everybody dials in separately on their laptops、mm. via video call. You know the tools for video conferencing today are phenomenal, whether it's Zoom or whatever it is, and that's one way we try to run remote first meetings and help with inclusion. The other thing that I think about and we think about is this idea of rotational team leadership. So helping to share out leadership responsibilities that helps with inclusion in itself because it's sharing out responsibilities for owning the meeting, tight agenda, keeping everything on track. And we make sure we rotate that round the team, but obviously that also helps back to growing, growing everybody, helping with this idea of leading from every seat. So I really like the work that Sean Aker does around happiness, but also around organisations. What we what he calls big potential, where he thinks about for us to have big potential and successful businesses, we need to help scale everybody's impact. And we need to create the future leaders in the business. So, just on that point, that actually has a multitude of benefits in that direction as well. And I think, unfortunately, the stories that we hear about company culture in the news can often often be the very negative examples. What are some of the warning signs people should look out for of an unhealthy culture? Fundamentally, is back to. Are companies having an intentional focus on the how we do things as much as what we achieve? We talk about wanting to win and be a highly successful business, but doing things winning, if you will, in the right way. And so these companies, we don't need to go into the examples, but there's so many of them. They've com- fundamentally missed the point. There, they have tried to grow at all costs. So that I think very much talks to the the idea now. We shouldn't be trying to just create shareholder value anymore. It needs to be thinking about creating value for all stakeholders. So that is value for our employees. That is value for customers. That is then obviously in so doing value for ourselves and our shareholders. But shareholders are only one part of the puzzle. The problem is when people over-index on shareholder value alone, that you tend to run into the difficulties. Now, I totally empathise. We have a duty of care to people that have invested in are basically, you know, funding funding our businesses, but. In the modern world, people need to have a sense of worthy cause. So Simon Sinek talks about this idea of a worthy cause as being fundamental to modern organisations and modern leadership. And so that is the idea. And, and getting rich quick is definitely not something that's going to appeal to many people. And you know, let alone what impact are we having on the planet? All that type of stuff in the realm of sustainability as well. Sure, and I think there is a real shift more broadly、uh, to agree with that. I think it was the CEO roundtable earlier this year redefined the purpose of a corporation to not only just focus on shareholder value, but but all of the other、uh, stakeholders. 
including employees. Um, so it's really, I think it's very heartening to see that from some of the largest corporations in the world. And hopefully that filters down into, you know, the small businesses and the startups and, and the scale-ups. What are three questions that every company should ask to improve employee engagement? So it starts by asking the right questions that measure engagement without getting the outcome measured correctly you're never going to be able to improve effectively on that. And it's amazing how many companies come to us and are still measuring engagement in a suboptimal way. The classic thing we see is that they only measure one part of engagement. Measuring engagement effectively looks at three things, recommendation, motivation, and commitment. They typically come to us only measuring recommendation. That's this idea Mm. of taking a net promoter score question. It's used to doing with their own customers. Yeah, it makes sense because we're doing customer research. Are we customer centric? We're asking our friends and colleagues whether we'd recommend this company. And so we turn that and we make it into what's called an ENPS, Employee Net Promoter Score, where are you willing to recommend this company as a great place to work? But you're fundamentally missing out on those two other key aspects of engagement, particularly uh, on the retention side, as I said earlier, with with, with that link to, to that null hypothesis of what's going to happen if we don't do anything, if we don't take remedial action. So that's the first thing, is getting the outcome model right. The other critical questions to ask, I mean, some some of the things I've talked about today are around leadership, right? They are around management, fundamental ways to create culture-first businesses. And so I would expect to see people asking questions around leadership. Do people you know, understand how their work links to the goals and success of the organization, creating meaningful and purposeful work for people. That's going to be fundamental to get an assessment of as well. And questions around management, you know, uh, whether it's our managers being good role models, are they, you know, are they helping people to see growth trajectories for people Mm -hmm. in the company? The other massive one, and I've sort of touched on it there, is around learning and development topics. People want to feel like they're continuously learning new skills, growing themselves to be better people professionally and even personally. And so as organizations today, we have a fundamental need to help people continuously learn. And so asking questions on learning and development and how we're doing as a business on that, you know, positive or indeed negative where we've got room for improvement is another one. By the way, always in our data, it typically always comes out as a high driver or a high impact question directly correlated to high engagement over time. That's great advice. Thank you so much for all of your insight, Matt. Really wonderful. And congratulations on on all of the success with Culture Amp. Can't wait to see where it goes in Europe and around the world. No, thank you so much, Christina. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every other week. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast. I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert, with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next, or send us an email, podcast at samsungnext.com. Cheers. <laughs>